HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Copper and Kings, pure copper pot distilled American brandy aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. For more information, visit copperandkings.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll, Lord. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm your host, Damon Bolte. And in the studio today, I've uh, got a buddy of mine that uh, we've been trying to get together to do this show for a very long time. It's been over five years now that we've been doing the Speakeasy here on Heritage Radio Network. And uh, we usually, when we uh, talk about it, it's a little late at night. And, it's about 2.30 in the morning. Yeah, usually. <laughs> Um, but my guest today is David Wondrich, uh, the foremost authority on uh, the history of cocktails and, and spirits, and uh, multiple uh, multiple books. This guy has put together, and over the years, he's won many awards and tons of accolades for his, his cocktail writing. Uh, outside of the books, working for Esquire, working Savour, great magazine, great publications. Uh, doing cocktail writing with him. The first time I actually met Dave Wondrich was uh, about nine years ago in a little shop in Red Hook, Brooklyn, called Linnell's, and he taught me how to make a blue blazer and a Tom and Jerry uh, when he was releasing his first major cocktail book, which is Imbibe. Uh, and I've... Now, since he, you know, since that point, I, I stopped burning myself because he actually taught me how to make that drink the right way it's a party trick (laughs) yeah yeah, totally um but yeah here we go dave welcome to the show thanks uh awesome to be here i i know we've been uh like you said talking about this for a long time but uh now's the time and uh this is great cool man i'm glad to have you here i mean i'm sure all of our listeners are really psyched to have you here as well too i so you've been um obviously you you're a very busy person, which is why it took so long for you to get on the show. But uh, one of the most recent things that you uh, worked on is this article in Savour that is out now, um, and it's on the discovery. I, you've constantly been searching for like the 
the etymology and the origin of the word cocktail. Like where where did where was where did this come from and what does it actually mean? There's so many different theories on it, but this article has dug much deeper than you had gotten to before. Well, you know, it, history is always uh, it's an evolving process, and sometimes that's really frustrating. You think you know something, and then uh, because it depends on your evidence, it's like anything else. You know, it it you got to change the history once you got uh, different evidence, and with the history of the cocktail, it's it's no different. Uh, evidence keeps coming up, and it keeps making me change my story and. Uh, for me, it seems it's better to uh, change the story than to just stick with something you said just because you said it. I mean, right. that doesn't make any sense. So uh, the history of the cocktail is one of those things that keeps changing uh, because we get new and new, more and more sources online. And it, it changes in surprising ways and takes us to some surprising places. Uh, when I started writing about this stuff, it was 15 years ago, uh, over 15 years ago now. And uh, the history of the cocktail as we knew it then was that it was an American drink. Uh, earliest reference was in 1806 in the Hudson Valley. And beyond that, we really didn't know very much about the origin. And uh, you know, this is what this article in Severo was about. They uh, were kind enough to, to give me enough space to uh, look into this little bit of a geeky question in some detail. And uh, I talked a little bit about kind of my journey towards coming to this, uh, where I stand now on it. And I, now I think we're kind of pretty close to the bottom of it because uh, we've got actual evidence and it all makes sense, although it's weird. Uh, <laughs> I, I will I will say what it is, but I'm going to draw out the suspense for a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that – it's it's an awesome article and I love the conclusion at the end, which – Really funny. I mean, but we'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's go back to to how you got involved. And uh, in, you said you've been writing for uh, writing about cocktails for fifteen years and started studying this. I mean, you were uh, a professor, uh, and you like. I, I mean, I I know that all of my teachers like drink a lot, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure maybe there was a connection there, but. Uh, uh, so just yeah, give me a give me a rundown on like well, the how you got into. Uh... I, I, I I guess I got into this because uh, in a moment of weakness in the late eighties, I went to grad school because uh, I had finally finished college uh, after dropping out for a number of years to play in rock and roll bands, which uh, was fun, mm -hmm. but uh, maybe uh, not a great long term career strategy for me. Uh, but. Uh, I went to grad school and uh, uh, eventually got a teaching job at the end of uh, my studies and discovered it was the worst job I'd ever had. <laughs> it was terrible. Everybody was telling me what to do. I hate that. <laughs> you know, it was uh, everybody was was dumping extra work on me just because I was I was the new guy. It was yeah. it was it was awful. It was not a fun job. Uh, I started writing about music on the side, and then I got a phone call uh, one day from my friend Josh Mack. Uh, lovely guy who was the uh, head of new media at Hearst Magazines. That was a new job. There was no new media. This was 1999. <laughs> you know, it was. But Hearst had a website, uh, websites for its various magazines, and uh, he had a little commission for Esquire.com, 
that for them was a little commission. For me, it was like $3,000, which for a junior English professor is a lot of money. And it was to take an old Esquire cocktail guide and uh, edit it for the web. Uh, you know, and they gave me basically, they had no idea what they wanted. So I went and kind of did it my own way. I threw out half the drinks. I wrote little bits to go with others. And uh, it turns out they really liked it. And so I got a drink of the week column on, on Esquire.com. And uh, that was followed soon after by a uh, a column in the magazine. And I've stuck with that ever since. <laughs> awesome. It's like, this is more fun than any other job I've ever had. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to stick with it. And I stuck with it and found other, other work in the field, let's say. Yeah. The... So let's go back to the music thing for a second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so your your music writing definitely did come out. Uh, you had the – before you wrote in Vibe, you were doing more uh, music yeah, writing. Yeah, I was yeah. a – I was a uh, – I wrote for the Village Voice quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I wrote for the New York Times occasionally for the Sunday Times. And I wrote kind of historical stuff. I was mostly interested in uh, everything that came before rock and roll. So I was uh, I was mostly a jazz critic. I wrote about like 1920s jazz. And at the time, you were starting to see young people, young musicians getting really into that stuff in New York. And you could go see people playing banjos and fiddles and cornets and all that because uh, they were a little tired with uh, what was on the radio and they wanted to go back to a sort of a DIY music. So that kind of, in a way, didn't hurt with my getting into the cocktail stuff because we're talking about an earlier America that I knew pretty well. <clears throat> and so I, you know, I wrote a book on this music stuff on how, uh, how American music got hot, you know, how we got that, that hot stomping uh, kind of ex- wild Stop excitement into it. Yeah, this book Stomp and Swerve, which was a little over the top uh, in its <laughs> prose style, but uh, I, that was because I was an English professor and going out of my mind. And <laughs> so I put every bit of fun that I had left in me into the book. Maybe a little too much. It's like the guy at the party who grabs you by the lapel and won't shut up, but uh, still. It was, uh, it was fun to do that. Well, they go hand in hand. I mean, like I like what you're saying about, you know, like you know when you go to like Sonny's, there's like the bluegrass night, yeah. But it, it, they go. It goes really well with drinking too. <laughs> hey, New Orleans jazz, come on. Yeah, I used to. Uh, my friend Sherwin uh, Sherwin Dunner, this uh, record collector, used to have a loft on Late Street, uh, you know, kind of uh, in North Tribeca, and he'd have like 1920s style rent parties there with. Uh, all these people would be there. R. Crumb would be there playing the banjo. Wow. Jeff Healy would be playing the cornet, which he also plays. Uh, the, these people, some who were you know pretty well known, and others who weren't. But uh, all these musicians, and I'd be there making sazeracs or bowls of punch. And this is you know this is in two thousand, two thousand one, something like that. It was a good long time ago now, and uh, everybody was was playing hot live New Orleans jazz, and uh, and and you know singing like red hot mamas and uh high step and daddies and all that kind of thing and it was very fun you know nobody was taking any money for it uh they were all getting drunk on sazeracs and uh it seemed to be uh exactly right nice was that something that this is almost like a chicken versus egg thing but was that something that got you into the cocktail or did the cocktail get you into the music i was doing the music before the cocktail thing but i'd always liked cocktails you know i 
I used to drink martinis uh, when I was a young musician in the early 80s, actually Gibson's. Uh, that's mostly because I couldn't afford to drink in fancy bars, and I couldn't really afford to drink in places that did uh, Cape Codders and stuff like that. I drank in old man bars. Yeah. And you can't really go into an old man bar and ask for a woo-woo. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you can ask for a gin martini, and they'll, they'll, they'll roll their eyes a little bit at, you know, who the hell is this kid? But on the other hand, they know how to make a gin martini, and it doesn't right. seem stupid to them. So they'll make you a gin martini. And, of course, that gin martini is all booze. So yeah, yeah. that's so good, it's, too. It's, uh, the bang for the buck. Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, nothing sure. beats a martini. Yeah. Especially with old-time bartenders who just never put any vermouth in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or or bitters for that matter. Anything. It's just <laughs> no, gin. It's just gin. Done. Yeah. yeah. Cold and gin. Probably the olives or the onions are soaked in booze too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I used to drink three martinis before I went on to play, and uh, and if I had three martinis now, I'd be in the corner. You know, I'd be passed out. Then you know, you're 21 years old. Three martinis. They were small, but nonetheless, three martinis was nothing. I'd just shrug it right off. It's oh, funny. Man. Yeah, I used to. Uh, <clears throat> I used to go to this place in in Oklahoma City that I I probably shouldn't have been there. Well, I know legally I shouldn't have been there. I was not of age, but they would serve me, and I, I definitely Fair enough. I went straight for the martinis, man. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I mean, like because they're going to figure out one of these days <laughs> or one of these moments in this night, and uh, then it's going to be done forever. Or at least till I turn 21. Yeah, but they're less likely to cut you off if you order a martini than if you order, like, a buttery nipple. <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. It's a thing. It's like, all right, this this person might be a little more mature than this other person. Yeah, there was, there was always, like, a, when I first started bartending, there was always a saying where if if someone came in and they looked questionable, like, their age, it wasn't, like, necessarily about, like, IDing them based on, like, their appearance. It was on what they ordered. Like, if they ordered a Long Island iced tea... Yeah, you definitely ID them. You you knew that <laughs> you, you were in for trouble. Yeah, exactly. You know, they were out to get hammered. It was like something like a pitcher of margaritas or like yeah. a long ice. These things that like, all right, this isn't that kind of bar, and that's what you're. You can yeah. read the room, you know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's funny. Um, I like. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I ever. I think the closest I would get to. Anything like that was I probably like probably drink like rum and cokes. I remember drinking rum and cokes a lot, like in my like early twenties, and then eventually oh, yeah. went to. I drank a lot of Bloody Marys, you know. But that's that's that's, that's a pretty reasonable. Drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, compared to you know some of the other things, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, did I have uh, snake bites and mudslides on occasion? Sure. <laughs> Uh, stuff like that. When you were at TJ Freddy's. Yeah, or where, you know, you're at the place and that's what they're making. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to turn down a drink if that's the drink that's there. You drink a hurricane when you're at Pat O'Brien's. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. is it the best drink ever? No. But it's the, you know, it's the, it's the wine of the country, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like going to the daiquiri yeah. stands yeah. when you're in New Orleans, getting a giant frozen daiquiri that's not really a daiquiri. No. <laughs> but you have to do it. It's a rite of passage. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, and it's something you have to do at least once while you're down at Tales of the Cocktail. Yeah. Um, they, uh, there was something, uh, speaking of, of these kind of drinks and I, I kind of find this to be not necessarily, uh, an old man thing to do, but I think it's a very grown up thing to do. And there's a kind of a running theme when I first read Imbibe, uh, that many years ago, uh, 
there was a really cool thing that I saw happen in the book where you know, like talk about like Manhattan or you know like uh, the, the just the, the Rob Roy or Manhattan mm-hmm. or Martini and a lot of times it would say. And you know what? If you want to top it with champagne, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> it's never a bad idea. It's never a bad idea. And I think, <laughs> and I, maybe I'm just making this up because it's fucking hilarious. Um, I think even on the French 75, you might have said to top it with champagne, like more champagne. <laughs> yeah, you could put more champagne. Or you could float a little cognac on top of the champagne. That's a good one, too. That's a good one, too. Yeah, that never hurts. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I quote you on that all the time. I'm like, yep, it's not bad with champagne on top of it either. Yeah. Make it a royale. Hey, uh, you know, the Manhattan with champagne, a Boothby cocktail. Yeah. That's a good drink. It's great. All those drinks are hot rails to hell, though. Oh, you yeah. Know, anything topped with champagne is just going to get you into trouble. Oh, well. But sometimes you want to get into trouble, though, so it's okay. Get, but it's <laughs> it's it's a different kind of uh, oh, yeah. uh, getting in trouble than the kid who's ordering the Long Island. Oh, Institute. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's fancy down. trouble. Fancy trouble. You'll get into some fancy-ass trouble. I'd love to get into some fancy-ass trouble, man. <laughs> um, another thing was, uh, you know, because like a, a lot of the classic cocktails are kind of – they. The uh, first one that comes to mind uh, from the book was uh, the Algonquin cocktail. Mm-hmm. And I think even the Brown Derby. Like, the, you gave suggestions on how to do these slight tweaks to kind of, like, modernize uh, the, the actual drink for, like, the modern palate. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, in the Algonquin, I believe you said, you know, much better drink if it has like a dash of orange bitters in there yeah it's it's little you know little things from experience i mean what i what i try to do in my books in general uh is i try to give you the original recipe as it was written mm-hmm. you know and i'm not going to change it and say that that's and write some new recipe and say that's the original recipe that seems a little bit uh, presumptuous to me right i'll give you the original recipe and then i'll say put champagne on it <laughs> yeah exactly i'll tell you how i might approach that recipe yeah. you know if i'm making this here's what i'm gonna do but i want to make sure you have the original because yeah. i'm wrong i'm wrong a lot you know everybody's wrong a lot and at least this way you've got the original you might know something i don't know that happens uh, surprisingly uh, depressingly often even and uh so this way you've got the original recipe you can interpret it yourself you know, I'm not rewriting it, and uh, I'm just giving it verbatim as I found it. Sometimes uh, what I've found is, is is pretty sketchy, so then there's a lot more reconstruction. But other times, you know, I just don't change a thing. Like any recipe I'll, I'll print from uh, the Floridita in Cuba, don't change a thing. That guy was a genius. Right. All of his drinks are delicious. Make them exactly as he says, you know. I, I would never mess with his drinks. Other people I mess with their drinks – Entirely, because uh, I don't trust them so much, and their palate isn't my palate. Yeah, but I'll always at least try to tell you what what I'm doing. Yeah, I mean that's that's something that we deal with behind the bar all the time. It's you know if someone orders a a margarita without Cointreau or simple, they just want tequila and lime shaken. It doesn't matter what you say to them. Yeah, it's it's their drink, and you know that's what they drink for so long. We would like tell people like. No, you can't have your Manhattan shaken. You know, at the end of the day, I could spend like 20 minutes describing to someone why yeah. this is wrong, but <laughs> it's not going to make them any happier. No. You know, so like, for instance, like, yeah, you know, the Algonquin cocktail, 
It's kind of a weird cocktail. I mean, it's, it's very, a weird tasting very drink. Flat. Yeah. Just and I, I feel like the brown derby can be that way too. I always put a little bit of lemon juice in my brown derby, and then I took your suggestion for the Algonquin, and it definitely makes it a better. And drink. put some champagne in it. Put some champagne. <laughs> well, the orange bitters part. Yeah, but yeah, okay. actually, the hey, champagne actually, part too. you know. Uh, any, any sour, a little bit of champagne on top is uh, is never going to harm it. It's never going to hurt. Yeah. yeah. There's a what are what are some of the uh, the cocktails like? What's what's an example of another cocktail that uh, that you like and maybe a modifier that you've kind of employed in the past? I mean, I know uh, I do it a lot with uh, well uh, for like s- simple straight drinks like. Uh, you know, like the old, fa- the old, the old whiskey cocktail, uh, which was uh, whiskey syrup bitters. You'd stir it, strain it up. Uh, that's delicious. I will put a spoonful of orange curacao in there. Uh, I like uh, if I'm playing around with the Manhattan. Uh, I might put a bar spoon of kummel in there, oh. and that's just you know, hey, it's rye and caraway. That's I mean, a well-known com- uh, yeah, combination, you know. It works really well. In there too. Yeah, you might. You could wrap <laughs> it around the stem. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I'd be really into that. Kumul is a funny ingredient. Too. Yeah, I it's mean, funny. Like, it's not very sweet, so you can't. Yeah. For a liqueur, it's a little too dry to uh, to to sub it in for most liqueurs, and a little yeah. too pungent. But you get the drink, the right drink for it, and uh, you put just a, a hint of it. It can be really delicious. I mean, a great example of that is the Allies cocktail. You know, gin, yeah. mar- gin martini with some cumul in it. And it's delicious. It's so good, and it's yeah. especially for like me for having an oyster bar. Yeah, make, having like that slightly savory uh, spiced martini to go with oysters. It, it that works. That works really well. Yeah, actually, I'm gonna have to have one of those later. Well, we'll, we'll do that when you come by the bar <laughs> yeah, later. Yeah. Um, Dave, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll continue talking with David Wondrich on the Speakeasy. What's up? This is Jack Inslee, the executive producer of Heritage Radio Network, also the host of Full Service Radio. And I want to talk to you about brandy. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit Louisville. And we all know Kentucky is whiskey territory. However, the best thing I had to drink was brandy. I got to visit Copper and King's Distillery, and they make pure copper pot distilled American brandy aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels and matured with rock and roll. That's right sonic aging they're playing music to the barrels the stuff is double distilled non-chill filtered unadulterated by bois sugar or caramel color and this stuff is feisty rambunctious with a long smooth finish the stuff isn't made exactly in the style of an international brandy or a cognac it's more along the lines of an american whiskey i can really be honest here and tell you i'm not just reading you an ad i'm giving you a tip american brandy You're not seeing it everywhere. Copper and Kings is doing it incredibly well, and they're cool people. The distillery is full of incredible art. Like I said, they're playing rock and roll to the barrels. So again, Copper and Kings, pure copper, pot-distilled American brandy, aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. That's copperandkings.com. Drink it neat, put it in a cocktail, sub it for your brown spirits, experiment, have fun, get funky. This stuff is awesome. 
<laughs> and we're back. You're listening to the Speakeasy, and in the studio today we have the legendary David Wondrich. Um, we were just talking, catching up on uh, some of our favorite cocktails, classics, and modifications. Um, but let's go back to the the original. So this article that you wrote for Savour just came out um, just now. It's on. It's on yeah, the it's, it's now. on. It's on the stands now. And yeah, uh, as I say, on the stands. Yep. Uh, the uh, you know, like we kind of uh, alluded to a little bit in the beginning of the show. You know, the the word cocktail has been like steeped in legend as far as its origin and etymology, and uh, you've made some serious headway on uncovering some of uh, some history. And uh, would you care to share it? Yeah, absolutely. Well. The first thing you you got to do if you if you're going back to the cocktail is like you got the history of it is is complicated because it's it's history that happens in a bar you know it's not like history that gets debated on on, on the floor of the House of Parliament yeah there's so, there's no stenographer yeah there's like, no stenographer when 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 cocktails are invented especially the original one so the first thing you got to do is at least at least for me is separate the recipe from the name uh, the recipe bitters sugar spirits. Uh, you know, alcohol and, and water or ice, uh, that goes back to the 1690s. It's early. This guy, Richard Stoughton, was a young apothecary, and he found a way of uh, making an instant version of a popular drink uh, called Pearl with a U. And you'd make Pearl by steeping herbs in beer or wine, uh, bitter herbs, and you'd drink it for your hangover, basically, or when your stomach was upset. And he said, well, what if I made like a little extract and put all those bitter herbs in some strong alcohol and uh, some good coloring in it, et cetera, and put it in a little tiny bottle and sold that bottle for a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, <laughs> and, he, and he got rich. Uh, and he sold that little bottle and it went everywhere. Stoughton's uh, Magnum Elixir Stomachicum, as he called it, his great stomach elixir, or everybody else called it Stoughton's Bitters. That was the first bitters. And uh, people were, he told people in his advertising, you know, he was a modern guy. He took out ads constantly uh, starting in, this, in the early 1690s. And he told people you could put it in beer, you could put it in wine, you could put it in tea or water, or you could put it in brandy. Uh, you know, brandy was pretty sweet back then. It was, they put a lot of sugar into it. And uh, basically, you've got a cocktail right there. You've got a teaspoon of bitters. You've got uh, a shot of brandy, which has already got the sugar in it. Yeah. Done, you know. Or you put it in sweet wine and canary wine, which was very sweet. You've got the dilution in there and the alcohol. And you make it. Uh, you recreate Stoughton bitters from old recipes and put it in, a, in, in some, like, white port or something. And it's freaking delicious, <laughs> you know? You can see why people liked it. Yeah. So you got this drink, wine and bitters, as it's called. Uh, usually, and it turns out that wine is a little bit of a loose term because uh, sometimes the wine was wine. Other times it was apparently gin or brandy or whatever you had. But the drink was, you know, they, they call it the classiest way possible, wine and bitters. And that goes back into the you know 18th century, both sides of the Atlantic. Then there's the name cocktail. There have been theories ever since 1820 about the where the name comes from. In 1820, they said it came from the rainbow nature of the uh, cocktail. That's one theory. There's some theories having to do with French words. There's other theories having to do with uh, 
cock ale that was like ale you fed gamecocks or you boiled the, the losers in, you know, in, in your cockfighting uh, days. Uh, and there's all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, in the in the uh, 1940s, H. L. Mencken made a big list of them. And you know, he was a a very good linguist and one of America's uh, most amusing public intellectuals and a guy who liked to drink and knew knew his way around. And, you know, he looked at all these things and he threw his hands up in the air. He said, there's no proof for anything. And that's always been the case. There have been theories after theories. Uh, in the late 70s, a guy took one of these theories uh, that said uh, it's called cocktail because uh, a cocktail horse was a mixed breed horse back in the day. Because uh, mixed breed horses you used for work and you would cut most of their tail You'd cock, you know, you'd dock their tails so that uh, they wouldn't have a long tail that got caught in the wagon uh, uh, traces that were that that the horse was that you were using to guide the horse, and so that was a working horse, and its tail would cock up because it was most of it was cut off. Uh, what was left would stick up in the air, and uh, this guy in 1978 uh, came up with that theory uh, that you know uh, because a cocktail horse was a mixed breed horse. Uh, that's the yeah. you know it's a mixed breed drink yeah. uh, with two different drinks in it. Now uh, I came up with that theory uh, myself in 1997. I didn't uh, know about this guy's uh, coming up with it, which again you know you're never you're never original in this world. Uh, but uh, and I put that in in imbibe, uh, and then suddenly. As soon, basically as soon as the book was in print, not much longer, uh, Jared Brown and Anastasia Miller in London, two very good cocktail researchers, uh, found uh, this weird little note in a, uh, a London newspaper uh, saying cocktail, uh, naming it as a drink and saying it's vulgarly known as ginger. And that kind of blew my mind because I knew about ginger and cocking tails up because uh, – you, it used to be a part of horse racing or horse uh, trading, rather, that uh, if your horse was a little old and a little droopy, uh, before the uh, the buyer would show up, you might lift up its tail and shove a little knob of ginger into its butt. And that would make the horse jump around real nice and look like a frisky young lad. <laughs> and uh, and uh, this was in a famous slang dictionary that I've always uh, had lying around uh, since, since you know, my early 20s, uh, the, the Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, which is just a very, very amusing book if you ever have uh, a few minutes and want more synonyms for drunk. <laughs> Admiral of the Narrow Seas. That means a drunk. God knows why. But anyway, uh, so uh, this guy talked about uh, this this process. And the amazing thing this time was I found actual evidence that ties this practice to the actual cocktail, the drink. And, uh, you know, there are newspaper little bits from the English newspapers in, in the 1790s talking about ginger and cayenne paper pepper being taken as cocktail to you know to to for people to uh to to uh perk them up and also how that cocktail term among the the sporty crew got to mean anything you took as an eye opener or or something to perk you up and suddenly that brings us to our cocktail which was always a morning drink it was an eye opener it was a 
a corpse reviver. It was a cocktail, you know, something to uh, get you to cock your tail up in the morning and uh, and face the day. And suddenly, you know, it's like all, all these little pieces suddenly fell into place uh, with actual evidence to back it up, which is crazy because uh, that never happens yeah. with stuff this old. You know, it's we don't know the origin of anything, really. There are only a few cocktails uh, know their know their fathers, so to speak. Yeah. I think it's funny, man. It's like after all this time, it, the history is kind of made like horses' asses out of us yeah, exactly. <laughs> for all of our yeah, yeah. nutball theories. Yeah, we're all we're all horses. It's like, asses. oh, it's, it's this <laughs> Mexican right. princess. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Oh my God, there have been so many. The coquetier, like you know, like yeah, no. That's... Well, the, you know, the the problem was until recently, it was almost impossible to dig up the proof. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we've got databases where people have been digitizing uh, old newspapers and you can finally dig into this stuff. And until now, we just didn't, you'd have to do it in real time. You know, you'd have to go and either read the paper, every line and, uh, you know, reading uh, old papers. How many issues could you get through in a day? Right. You know, three, four. Yeah. I mean, this is never on, on in large type on page one. You know? Right, right. It's always on <laughs> on page fourteen in a in a two line item. You know, yeah. it's like, uh, oh man, it's very hard to dig up well, by traditional means. I mean, you've had plenty of practice doing that. I mean, first with imbibe, and then, I mean, I'm sure like a lot of this direction probably came from when you were writing punch because punch goes really deep. Yeah, further into the past, you know, so. Man. And a lot of most of that comes from actually, you know, my grad school experience mm-hmm. where I wasn't a historian. I was a comp lit person, but I did old literature and, and I was I got actual training, you know, and that training involves being extremely painstaking. <laughs> it's really slow. You know, yeah. everything is slow. you got to check every single thing. Uh, just check, 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 you know, look it up. Even if it takes, if it's one little footnote, uh, spend a couple days on it. If that's what it takes, mm-hmm. that's the only way, you know, and, and that's how you, you, you finally, uh, get into a position where you know something mm-hmm. because, uh, it's never where you first look, you know, there's all that's where the real information, uh, where, where, where it comes in is once you're over t- turning over every little rock, under the smallest pebbles, you find the biggest diamonds. You know, it's yeah. like I, I would have never looked here except uh, I'm just doing my due diligence, and then bang! You know, what the hell is this? It's amazing, man. Yeah, that's always the fun part. Yeah, I, you know, I always found I still, well, I still do find making drinks and and researching on this stuff. I mean, I, I, my research is reading your books. You know, <laughs> like you've done the actual research, but like, but I. It's something that really attracted me to making cocktails in the first place is the fact that you can never actually know it all. Yeah. There's always more to learn. There's always more reading to be done, more searching, more learning from other bartenders and and just people like yourself, you know. And uh, it's it keeps everything extremely interesting. It's an interesting topic to begin with. But, it is, but uh, it's it's great that you'll never know it all. Yeah, I mean, for me, I. 
I look on the other side of it, you know, coming from the kind of the, the embassy to bartenders from, from the library, you know, uh, I, I learned so much from bartenders, from watching people like you work and, and multitask and be cool under pressure. And uh, that, that to me is, is just always impressive as hell. I've, I've learned more, more life lessons from bartenders than, uh, than from any academic I know with, with, you know, almost no exception. It's, it's really, uh, uh, for me, it's just been, a lifesaver to get out of academia and, and into something where people are actually working with their hands and uh, interacting with people and uh, being social and making people happy rather than sitting and bickering among themselves. You know, it's it's a yeah. pleasure for me to write my books for bartenders uh, largely. I mean, it's for the general public, but with a lot of extra bartender stuff put in there because uh, I love bartenders. <laughs> <laughs> and every once in a while, I get behind the bar, and then I realize uh, how hard that job is. You know, it's yeah. it's underappreciated. I mean, you've got to be a systems engineer, yeah. and and that uh, takes uh, it takes a lot of intelligence and a lot of uh, a lot of speed and quick wit to to do the job well. And uh, that just always impresses the hell out of me. Well, we're about to be impressed by you because we're going back to my bar now. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we're going to go to Grand Army where. You're down to get behind the bar and make some drinks, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll, st- I'll stir up some cocktails. I'll make sherry and bitters. Sweet. Like George Washington served the British. That's amazing. Uh, you know, or wine <laughs> and bitters. We will, don't know what that I was. I will always be in your army, man. <laughs> but you're going to be in the Grand Army. I can't wait. In about an hour. Uh, I, so. look, I look upon that as being our headquarters. Heck yeah. Um, Dave, it's always a pleasure to chat with you, man. And I'm so glad you finally got on the show. We're going to head over to my bar now, to Grand Army, and mix up some drinks. There's four cocktails in particular that were are in this article uh, in Silver Magazine, and we're going to make those here in a little bit. So if you're around downtown Brooklyn, Borum Hill area, uh, we're going to be there from 5 to 7 making some drinks with Dave Wondrich. Man, thanks again for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm glad we finally made this happen. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely, man. So, all right. That's it for the Speakeasy this week. Check in to HeritageRadioNetwork.org for many other shows like that. Until then, cheers. Cheers. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.